Hello and welcome to Inside the Artist Studio. My name is Sean Davis Newton here for the Cups and Cakes Network. Uh, today is kind of an auspicious occasion for Inside the Artist Studio. It's our 100th episode. So before we get started, I wanted to just say a quick thank you to uh, everybody who has tuned into the show and uh, also to everybody that I've gotten to talk to and that Jeff has gotten to talk to over the past few years of doing the show. It's uh, been a really great opportunity to to get to talk to a lot of folks in the Canadian music scene that I uh, personally really, really admire and have gotten to learn a lot from. Uh, speaking of people that I admire and that I have learned a lot from, I'm really, really excited. We got uh, Dan Mangan on episode 100 of this show. This was, uh, this was a really special one for me. I- I've been listening to Dan's music since I was 13 or 14 years old. It's-, it's stuff that I really, really grew up with. So it was really exciting to get the chance to pick his brain about, you know, how he got started as a, as a touring musician, when he started writing songs in the first place, uh, how he picks the kinds of collaborators that he picks to make each album sound uh, different than the last. Uh, along the way, of course, we talk about Dan's uh, company that he co-founded with Laura Simpson, which is called Side Door, which matches uh, touring artists with people who want to host house shows in their home or in any kind of other unique space that they may have. Uh, oh, geez, what else? We talk about uh, getting decaffeinated. We talk about playing Breath of the Wild. We talk about they might be giants. It's, uh, it was a really, really fun chat. Of course, there may be some foul language in this episode, so listener beware. And lastly, Inside the Artist Studio is one of the many ways that the Cups and Cakes Network highlights Canadian music. You can check out our website, cupsandcakespod.com, to find other episodes of this podcast, as well as other audio, video, and written content. That's cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks so much again for tuning in to Inside the Artist Studio. Here's Dan Mangan. Hello there, I'm Dan Mangan, and I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I've put out five studio LPs, a bunch of other stuff. Spent the better part of the last couple decades touring. I've had the pleasure of playing lots of festivals all over the world. I have done some uh, film and television scoring, and uh, recently a lot of my time has taken up with Side Door, which is a uh, marketplace a platform for the arts where any space is a venue and artists can book their own tours by connecting directly with DIY hosts. Perfect. Well, uh, Dan, thanks so much for coming on Inside the Artist Studio is the name of the show. <laughs> uh, we're going to do a little rapid fire stuff here right off the bat. And then uh, we're going to talk about that uh, vast and storied career that you just described. So uh, <laughs> without uh, further ado, we'll kind of hop into things here. Sure. Let's do it. Excellent. Um, is there a uh, specialty dish or something that you cook that people kind of associate with you? Oh, I don't. I mean, I don't know if people associate this with me, but uh, my family does. Um, I I make really good scrambled eggs. Okay. And uh, you know, I know that that's not like a big special fancy thing, but um, I I just know how to make them delicious. Yeah, what what's the secret? Is is it like it's a few secrets? Ah, there's a few untold secrets. Well, I mean, I don't think they're untold. You probably look it up. Um, I'll, I'll go through it. Yeah. if that would be helpful to your listeners. Um, so the trick is, you you get a bunch of butter in a pan, and you get it going. So it's like you know, cooking and melting, 
And then you put in a bunch of eggs for my family. There's three of us that eat scrambled eggs. My four-year-old is not into it. So that's six eggs. And um, I don't do any whipping in a bowl, nothing like that. You just put them right in the pan. But then with your plastic spatula or wooden spatula, you just keep it moving. Keep it moving all the time. And uh, you uh, go, 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 go. You, you don't let it sit for too long, but you let it sit for long enough that it starts to coagulate a little bit. And then uh, the trick is to keep it moving quite a lot. And uh, the cheese is the next thing. So some uh, grano padano. Yeah or a grana padano, I think that's what it's called, or some Parmesan or some sharp cheddar. But the trick is, this is the, this is the key, a lot of people put the cheese in too early. And you have to wait until it's like 90% cooked. Yeah. And so you put in a bunch of cheese in there when it's like almost ready to serve. And then you, and sometimes actually, even if it's overcooked, the cheese will revive it because it'll add a bunch of moisture to it. <laughs> so then you get the cheese going, you melt it, but you want like there to be like little chunks of cheese in there. It shouldn't be like completely vaporized. And then you turn off the heat and then you kind of like scoop it all together. And I kind of like take the mass of eggs and I put it against the side of the pan. So like there's like minimal surface area and it's all kind of keeping itself hot. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of like continues to cook a little bit, but it should be like a little moist when you serve it. Like it should be a little bit, not soupy, but like, um, I don't like the eggs when they're just like, kind of like chunks, like they're, they're too cooked. Like it should feel a little bit like, I don't know, what's the word? Gunky? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it should feel like food, not like a, not like a Tim Hortons egg, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um. And like if it starts to go kind of like that, like white color, like it starts to get really light in color and it's no longer yellowy or orangey, yeah. then you know like you're you're starting to overcook it. Yeah, you done goofed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you prefer uh, coffee or tea? Definitely coffee. Huge, huge coffee fanatic and obsessive um, addict. <laughs> and I recently, last year, I had to go off caffeine, so I started doing decaffeinated coffee. Uh, and since then, I found some really good decaf roasts out there. And uh, it just had to do with health reasons, like I was getting this weird reflux thing. Yeah. Um, which was terrible, like four days of agony. When I, I went cold turkey, and I realized after the fact that if you're ever going to cut caffeine, pro tip, do it slowly. Do it over the course of like a week and like incorporate more decaf into your coffee. Yeah. Because if you cut it off right away, like just cold turkey, four to five days of hell, like couldn't concentrate, um, just was napping all the time, grumpy, terrible headaches, yeah, 24 yeah. hours a day. Yeah. It's a real drug. It is not a light <laughs> drug. It's a real thing. Yeah. I didn't kind of realize until fairly recently i work at a recording studio here in edmonton and the very first day i was there was a couple months ago the guy who owns the place came in and he had bought this brand new like 500 dollars super fancy pour over coffee machine um and i had never really drank coffee before now you drink a couple coffee uh, a couple cups of coffee in a day and it's like oh my god <laughs> this really yeah. like gets you going well and there's something about that caffeine high like you yeah know, yeah nice sunny day going for a walk first cup of coffee or something like that it's amazing um <laughs> but i got to the point where i was doing like three pretty strong americanos a day yeah and uh it's not not cool i think i think it like messed up my gut yeah maybe for the rest of my life <laughs> so, no. 
We'll see. Uh, what's the weirdest job you've ever had? Uh, I was a junk hauler. I drove a junk truck and I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, so I'd show up and, you know, take all your crap, take it to the dump. <laughs> Stank. Smelled real bad. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, uh, how old were you when you did that? Like, when about was that? Uh, I would have been I'd probably about like 19. Okay. Or so. I did a lot of odd jobs. I worked at lots of restaurants. I worked at cafes. I worked at Starbucks for a while. Um, worked at a, a cinema, like a movie theater, serving popcorn and sweeping up popcorn. Um, what else did I do? Man, so many things, but a lot of service industry. like Yeah, yeah. Serving tables, bartending, you name it. What's the very first car you ever owned? Well, uh, the very first car I had was my mom's old Volvo. It was like 20 years ago. It was like, it was like a 92, I think. And yeah, this yeah. would have been, you know, maybe like around 20, 2008 or so. And it was like, it was on its last legs. And um, so she kind of like, I don't know if she gave it to me or sold it to me for cheap. I can't really remember. Um, but I needed a car for a couple tours and then yeah. she had gotten a new car and then I like came back from a tour and then I just sort of kept driving it and <laughs> stole it basically. W- would that have been like the type of, I know, uh, I-, I love like Volvo's BMWs from the eighties where they're like, it's like a long rectangle with a small rectangle on top of it. Like mm. they're super square. Is it one of those this guys? This was like, you know, Compared to that vintage, this would have felt like a modern car. <laughs> this is probably in the '90s or kind of getting a bit sleeker. Yeah, yeah. But but still, like compared to most cars in you know 2008 or whatever, when I was still driving this car, it was it looked ancient. Yeah, it yeah, looked yeah. like uh, you know, and it was like none of the windows worked. It had like it had electric windows, which for like the early '90s was like kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was probably a really expensive car when it was first bought because it had all like leather interior and but uh i'm pretty sure i think i sold it to you know what i sold it to my friend rob who worked at file under music uh which was the first record label that i was signed to here in vancouver yeah yeah i think i sold it to him for like four hundred dollars or something like that because <laughs> <laughs> he had a side gig he was uh you know you wouldn't know it but um working you know a record label an indie record label was not necessarily making him a fortune so he uh he was he had a side gig like painting people's houses yeah so he needed a car with a big hatch and it was like one of those hatchbacks so he could go around and haul paint yeah yeah if you could uh put together like a fantasy show lineup like any kind of two or three bands give yourself a ticket to go see that show uh what kind of things would you book Oh man. Well, I mean, requisite answer is Radiohead because they are the best band, period. Um, who else do I want to see? You know, I've never seen Bjork play live. I think that would be pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. Um, never seen Beck play live. I'd like to see see him. Uh, I'm trying to think of bands that are still around that uh, I have never been able to see. You know, like people say Springsteen is one of the ones you just got to see before you die. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen him. Or Bob Dylan. I've seen Neil Young a few times. Um, but uh, Joni Mitchell, man, that'd be crazy. Yeah. Although, I mean, she's not really playing much shows this, these days. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard uh, kind of mixed things about going to see late career Bob Dylan, too, mm-hmm. which is like, ah, it's like, it's still love to, but... Uh, 
I think you got to know what you're getting into. Yeah. You know? Like Bob Dylan has never stopped effing with the world, you know, like, and that's kind of, that's what we loved him for before, but now, you know, we, as much as you're aching to hear, don't think twice exactly as it is on the record. Cause that's how, what it means to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's kind of a joke, right? Like, Hey, Hey guys, pay like $130 or whatever to come see <laughs> Bob Dylan play at the Orpheum. And it's going to be just as like apathetic to your wants and needs as it was in 1972, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, I, I respect him for staying, you know, just kind of doing whatever he wants and people still love him for it. Um, but at the same time, as my friend Grant Lawrence would say, play the hits. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Is there a uh, social media account that you follow that brings you some joy uh, when you scroll past it day to day? Interesting question. Most social media sucks. Um, yeah, most of it does I not would, bring joy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like I have a love hate with it, as many artists probably do, because it connects me to a great deal of people with which I have like a really direct, you know, dialogue with. Yeah. DMs, like, you know, people that have told me incredible stories about being at my shows or, or, or listening to my music, and they would have had no medium to do that, you know, before social media. Um, so that's really cool. Um, and so I, I do feel like there is some connection, but the, like, infinite scrolling to make you feel bad about yourself is just brutal. <laughs> um, the FOMO and the comparing yourself to other people is just, like, cancer in the mind. But Yeah, yeah. Um, you know whose social media always brings me a little bit of joy is Charles Spearin. You know Charles Spearin from Broken Social Scene? Oh, Dumex, yeah. I think. Yep. Who actually just, I think, today put out a record. So uh, check that out. Do you prefer sports, board games, or video games? Sports, board games, or video games? Uh, I mean, I love playing sports. I've never been that good at it, you know, like I was <laughs> yeah. like as a kid, I was never the worst player on the team, but I was never the best. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> middle of the pack. I'd always get like the sportsmanship award or something like that. <laughs> um, I do love sport and I like being active and in my body, but uh, with the family, we play a lot of video games, lots of card or not uh, board games. Yeah. Yeah. Card games. Uh, I think that's crucial. I think it's really healthy to do that because it involves your mind and it involves interactivity with other people. I also love video games, but you know, I'm not going to advocate for video games. I'm not like, I'm not like a gamer who thinks that game gaming makes you a better person. I don't think it makes you a better person at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do love playing them like everything from, uh, uh, Zelda breath of the wild with my kid on the switch, like best game yeah. ever in history. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, but down to like, you know, like I, I like playing stupid games on my phone too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I love video games. However, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, not really a part of gaming culture. And I don't think it's, um, I don't think gaming is saving anyone, saving the world. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you're talking about card games, are you talking like, like 52 card deck card games or like, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like crazy eights with the kids, like they're four and eight. So, you know, like they're pretty young still, but they can, they can hack like, 
crazy eights and go fish and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as they get older, like I, I love when I was a kid, my stepdad taught me how to play hearts. Oh, yeah. Which I think is sort of like, you know, kind of like the, the, the layman's version of bridge, really, you know? <laughs> and I don't know how to play bridge or whist or any of those games, but I loved playing hearts as a kid. And I think that's like a great four-player social, like you can spend a few hours just playing hearts. I've never been able to talk touring ensemble into playing hearts on on the road because you need four people you can't do it with only three yeah yeah um i don't think and um but you know to get four people to commit to sitting down for like half an hour or an hour is sometimes hard (laughs) uh do you have any uh kind of i'll say strange hobbies or pastimes that uh, uh people might consider kind of niche or a little bit strange one thing that I'm uniquely good at, and I've mentioned this before in interviews, is foosball. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, like, I, if you are just your average run-of-the-mill foosball player, I will crush you. <laughs> now, that being said, if you're actually, like, a competitive foosball player, that's, like, a whole other tier. So, yeah. in, your, in the world of, like, people who are just regular but good at something, like, I, I, I smash foosball. That's, like, a real... <laughs> point of pride for me yeah um and uh i don't have a foosball table it's not something i do regularly <laughs> but anytime like we're playing in a bar and there's a foosball table i'm like begging people to play me yeah yeah i i love those kinds of games yeah like foosball or darts or or like uh even pool to some extent right where for the most part you you can be the person who gets like really good at those things without ever having kind of professional aspirations towards mm-hmm. them um totally i think that it has to do with like time in your life too so yeah when i was young and i was in university there was a foosball table you know right there i could play foosball all day long and skip class and um now with kids and work and music and it's just like i have no time to have a hobby like so i i really there's a part of me that kind of looks forward to when my team my kids are like teenagers yeah and i feel like i can reclaim a part of my world that is just for me, you know, like a, some kind of silly hobby or, you know, the, our, our lead developer at Side Door, he's a big movie guy. Yeah. And uh, he uh, compiled a spreadsheet of every film that The Simpsons has ever um, referenced. And like painstakingly, <laughs> he did this uh. and compiled a list of like 400 and 22 films or something like that yeah in all whatever 27 seasons of the simpsons or whatever um that they have referenced and he is he has like three left he's been like he's basically (laughs) he's made it his the point to to watch every single one of these films i was like that's amazing yeah like this guy doesn't have any kids he (laughs) lives alone he's got time through the pandemic you know he's been watching lots of films what a great thing to like you know just some arbitrary gratuitous act uh i think it's brilliant you know it's good to have things in your life that you do only for the sake of doing them well yeah and before watching all 427 movies you need to watch 27 seasons of the simpsons uh which is itself (laughs) an enormous undertaking you know he probably had a jump start on that from and i think he used like (laughs) you know there's a lot of like uh simpsons wiki for sure yeah content out there i think he had some help but he still did the research you know like yeah he's the one who went out there and found all those films 
So we got uh, two questions left. Uh, is there an album that spurred your love of music? Totally. Um, as a kid, I would say no album got me fired up to be a musician more than Abbey Road. Um, when I was like eight or nine, that was like my point of pride is that I could uh, play Abbey Road from start to finish, or side B, not the whole record, but side B. I don't know if you remember this, but it's like one consecutive piece of music. Yeah, yeah. Um, starting with, I think it's Here Comes the, um, Here Comes the Sun King, yeah. all the way through Her Majesty. Um, and so I could do that on the piano. I could play through that whole sort of like, um, uh, not melody, what's it called? Uh, medley. Yeah. I could do that that whole medley. And I just, over and over and over again, I loved, I've memorized, you know, just like everyone, just like many other people, I've memorized that entire record, you know, every little did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, or drum fill or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. It's in my blood so deeply. And then there was a lot of other Canadian content too that I got into, like the Tragically Hip and. My sister was a huge fan of Sarah McLaughlin, so there was a lot of that in the house and fifty four forty and um you know i it's funny, like looking back, there was a lot of Canadian content in my house as yeah. a kid, which is really cool and i I think that part of that was my I was the youngest sibling of three uh and there was a period of my life where my mom married uh, a guy named Thomas who had three other boys, so I was at that time the youngest of six, so I was the benefactor of like five other tastemakers, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I I wasn't having to find it myself, but it was kind of distilling down from everything that was around me. Um, So there was a lot of different influences. And then, you know, Paul Simon and Nick Drake and Van Morrison and all kinds of stuff. Very last question then. Uh, Are there any kind of uh, up-and-coming bands or or artists that you think kind of deserve a little shout-out? Absolutely. Um uh, Charlotte Cornfield just put out a record, which is, I've only, she's only got one track out, but it's awesome. Uh, and her last record was great. Um, there is a, uh, young, but, uh, pedigreed musician named Georgia Harmer. You can guess who she's related to, um, who is phenomenal. Uh, and I have had a sneak peek at her debut record and it is incredible. Yeah. Um, so keeping your ear out for Georgia Harmer. Um, what else? Yeah, Astral Swans just put out a great record. I think he is a perennially underappreciated artist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who deserves to be a lot more well-known than he is. Um, but I got, I mean, I, I'm sure if I could spend a few more minutes thinking about it, I could come up with more, but yeah. Yeah, it's always funny. I, I feel like um, most of those kind of rapid-fire quote-unquote questions, you could probably spend an hour talking about bands that are great that nobody mm-hmm. really talks about as much as they should yeah yeah but uh perfect well let's uh let's kind of move on over into the second half of things here then uh i i guess just uh right off the top get uh, get the ball rolling uh how has the pandemic been for you how has that kind of uh uh gone down in your house it's been been many many things um <laughs> yeah i mean it hasn't all been bad you know, I'll say that. For sure. Um, it's funny being on this side of it because we're like almost done with it, but we're not. Um, side door blew up. Like we, we at the beginning of the pandemic, we had like seven employees and now there's over 20 people that work at side door. So that's just been bonkers. And 
you know, I, I kind of joke that I got into music so I would never have to have a real job. And now I've ended up with like two real <laughs> jobs, you know, music yeah. and, and, uh, side door. Um, it's been wild. Like I, you know, I just posted the other day, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, um, like right before mother's day, like right at the onset of the pandemic. So that gave like a nice cherry on top of the pandemic. Yeah. Of, like, she was like going through chemo and I couldn't even like give her a hug or anything. So that sucked. Um, and she's, she's in good shape now. Um, yeah, that's great. You know, ho- hopefully, hopefully she can kind of stay in good shape for a long time. But, um, you know, so that was, that was what it was. I've been making a record long distance with a guy in Chicago named Drew Brown, who produced quite a lot of my last record. And he's phenomenal, creative dude. He's worked with Radiohead and Beck and um, Blonde Redhead and all sorts of great bands. Um, so that, but that's been slow. Like it's been a weird creative process because you kind of want to do it, and it's like this weird back and forth. And I can only really work like Fridays. <laughs> I've been doing like <laughs> Friday afternoons. I'm working on music, and every other day I'm just working on side door through the pandemic. So slightly strange. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't had time. Like, I know some people are like, yeah, pandemic's been great because I just, like, <laughs> read a lot of books and ride my bike. And, you know, I took up a bunch of hobbies. And I'm just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I've been busier through the pandemic than I've ever been in my whole life. Um, and, I, you know, it's it's also been, like, a transformative experience. You know, I posted the other day about, like, I've had a lot of health changes. Yeah. Um, I've lost, like, a ton of weight and really started focusing on my health and focusing on eating better and like exercising regularly and meditating and doing things for my mind and like mind to body connection. Um, and so in, in some ways, maybe like without the pandemic, I wouldn't have had the wherewithal like to do a reset in that regard. But yeah, even just looking at my mom, you know, like she's in her late sixties and, you know, got cancer and I, I, there are elements in her past that maybe sort of set her on a path some events or health events and things like that sort of like set her on a particular path and thinking about, you know, what can I do now at 38 to like better set myself up for middle age and beyond so that I can be like a really healthy person who lives a great, you know, enjoyable long life. And so in investigating, like making those changes for real, um, that was that was huge, and I don't I don't know if I could have done that without the pandemic because yeah. I needed to like have a big slap in the face, you know. Yeah, I, I know I I've talked to a few people about just like, um, when you have to spend you know a year plus just kind of like um, in your body without necessarily the normal amount of distractions that you would normally have, you mm-hmm. just kind of end up sitting and being like, uh you have a better understanding of like what's going wrong i guess you're able to pay a bit more attention to yourself and that's good right like i know for me definitely there's a whole bunch of stuff that uh i i don't think i had the wherewithal to even notice right about myself and then you spend a year having to deal with that (laughs) totally yeah there's there's um i mean it's been strange because on one hand like i've been busier than ever on the other hand i've been home and I'm, you know, I've spent most of my adult life like on airplanes, just traveling. And so it was, it's weird. Like, you know, we're, we're starting to look at booking tours again and getting on flights again and doing shows again. And my wife's kind of looking at me like, you mean you're going to leave? Like <laughs> she's gotten really used to me just being around and like helping, you know, 
like co-parenting. Yeah. You know, when I'm gone, she's the only, she's a single parent and uh, we've been home, both of us. And, you know, bless her. She's taken the brunt of the childcare through the pandemic because I've just been so busy with side door and music and stuff. But um, there is like, also you kind of got used to it. Like I right. mentioned like uh, Stockholm syndrome, you know, you kind of fall in love with your captor. <laughs> And every time I hear about like, oh, it's all opening up again and life's going to, there's going to be concerts again. And there's a part of me that's like, oh God, now I have to learn. Like I had to learn what it felt like to be in a pandemic. And now I have to learn what it feels like to be a musician post pandemic. And how is that different? And you kind of get complacent in a way. Like there's a part of me that's like, oh, maybe it'd be fine to never tour again, you know, but of course that's not a possibility. I have to tour. I have to, you know, feed my kids. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's, it's all confusing and, and ups and downs. Like i I sometimes found like some mornings, like I would just be like unreasonably grumpy for no reason at all. Like I had no, there's nothing I could pin it on. Yeah. And then, you know, thinking about it, I'm like, well, it's just like weird pandemic shit. Like, yeah, it just, it's, it's affecting us and our like circadian rhythms in ways that we can't understand or acknowledge yet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, mood swings or whatever, uh, there's a lot about this time, you know, I, I, I joke that I I look for, I mean, I don't even think it's a joke, but I look forward to reading Malcolm Gladwell's (laughs) account in five years about how the pandemic changed our habits, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I spent 10,000 hours doing absolutely nothing for an entire year. I got really good it? at it. I'm a pro. I, I'm, I've reached a, I, I've never read that book. I'm just <laughs> riffing yeah, yeah, on yeah, something yeah. I've never even read. Yeah. You, gotta, <laughs> you became a pro, but well, I, yeah, and I'm someone who doesn't do well with idle hands. Like I, I start getting anxious. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Weird. And de- you know, depressed. And so keeping busy is really good for me. Um, we recently went on a little vacation just for like six nights and it took me like three and a half days to actually just chill out. And then I got really into chilling out and I was like, I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to do anything. You know, I just want to yeah, yeah. hang out all day. This is great. <laughs> um, but you know, like you get set on these paths and it's important. It's important to reset. I, you know, it's like the Nintendo. Yeah. I don't know how old you are, but when I was a kid, it was like the NES, like the original NES. Yeah. And you had to like press reset because the screen would freeze every now and then. And sometimes I feel like that's my brain. It's just like frozen. It's like Mike Tyson's getting ready to punch me or whatever. And <laughs> I'm frozen and I have to hit reset. And then it's yeah, yeah. ding, 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 ding. And then you're back into it. Have, have you gotten pretty good for like adhering to a schedule of your own creation, if you know what I mean? Um, yeah, recently especially. Like I get up and either me or my wife will like make the kids breakfast, but... Or sometimes both of us. Um, but I have a morning routine now. That is, I shower and then I do a cold plunge in the bath. So I like run cold water in the bath. Yeah. And I do this like Wim Hof, Wim Hof, Wim Hof uh, <laughs> breathing method yeah. thing. In the, and it's, it's basically like breathing and meditating in a bath of not ice cold, but like almost ice cold water. Yeah. Um, and it's... <laughs> It's so crazy. The first time I did it, I'm like, oh, God, that's terrible, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, it, 
I think I'm going to do it every day for the rest of my life. Like it, it, um, I knew people that did like a cold shower at the end of the shower. Like they just flip it to cold yeah, and get like sprayed with cold water and that wake, woke them up. And I was like, you're an idiot. That's so dumb. You know, like <laughs> well, I just want to get like hit with like these little ray guns of coldness. Um, but submerging yourself in cold water and I do it for like quite a while. Like I'm in there for, I do these like 30 breaths and you hold your breath and you, yeah, I'm in there for like four or five minutes. And when you get out, you're like, what's next? Let's do this. <laughs> like, you're, you know, so yeah, I get yeah. out of there and I'm just like full of energy. I feel amazing. And then I get right into like a quick little like 10 minute workout that I can do in my room. Um, and it doesn't involve any gear or anything like that. It's right. almost impossible for me to find like half an hour or an hour to do like a real workout and properly exercise. But, you know, 10 minutes, I can, I can find 10 minutes in the morning. So that's what works for me. And I've been doing that now for a couple months. And uh, yeah, I, I just want to do that the rest of my life. I, I, I've never felt so consistently okay in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So uh, hopping, I guess, way back in time, um, when did you start, I guess, like playing and writing your own songs? Um, I think I wrote my first song. I was about 15, yeah. 16. Um, probably a pretty common age to start doing that kind of thing. And it was a song for a girl that I'd just broken up with. Um, it was sort of like a breakup song in a way. Yeah. It was terrible. God, it was bad. But it was necessary, you know, um, yeah. to begin with. It was sort of a, it was just a stepping stone. I mean, I think I wrote like 50 bad songs before I wrote a decent one. And, um, Sometimes uh, when I see like um, Billie Eilish or like, you know, one of these sort of like phenom stars like Lord or um, who's like 17 and they're just like writing these amazing songs. I'm like, God, how'd you do that? Like, I feel like I was like maybe 26 when I got really good at writing songs. Yeah. And, um, and like, I, I can recognize now looking back, like, for a long time, I was emulating my heroes, and I just wanted to be like them. And then, eventually, I just did it for long enough that I started realizing like what my particular voice is yeah. with writing songs, like my angle on it. And uh, you know, I'm 38 now, but I think I'm writing the best songs of my whole life now. Like, I, there's a, I think it's it's got to be a journey, and you have to feel like you're. Like if all if all you're mining is like youthful muse, it's not enough. There's like a that'll run out. Yeah, it's like it's like if your whole marriage is based on lust, it'll run out. You right. know. Yeah, there has to be friendship in there too, and um, it's the same thing with songwriting. Like if it's all when you're young, it's just based off of like this fire fury of like that will run out in a you know in a sense, and so there has to be this this marriage of like craft and fire yeah and you know i, I don't want to say you're going to run out of fire cuz there's still fire you know, you can always tap into the fire but um you do get like you have less energy like when you get older and you've less time in a day you have more obligations like when i was young i just wrote songs whenever i wanted to write songs and now like my life is like segmented into like i cal schedules you know <laughs> yeah and um 
And like, if I want to have a creative day, like I have to put it in the calendar and like not let anyone else take up any space in that day. Right. And, um, so I have to, I have to be a little bit more pointed about like tapping into that fire. And, um, sometimes it's like a sponge, like you have to like wring it out before you can fill it up again. Like you have to just like get out the gunk. Yeah. You know, and so you have some like a bunch of like crappy half written songs or something. You just got to finish them, move on, make room for something new. Um, and then you can fill up your, your sponge and get inspired, you know, by whatever new record is coming out or a great film or yeah, go see a concert or something and get you all fired up and we make you want to write new songs. Um, but uh, it's a long process and it's never over. Like I, I, I think that's sort of like a big uh, epiphany for me over the last couple of years, especially through the pandemic. Like health, for instance. Like yeah, health is not a silver bullet. There's not a thing that you can do to be healthy. It is like a collective. It's like a hundred daily habits. Yeah, you know, it's just set up your patterns and rhythms in a particular way so that you can be sound of mind and and have like a be tapped into your your physical and mental well being. Um, and so it's the same thing with songwriting. Like you just have to always be working at it. Always want to be better. It's yeah. the thing. People get, people get good at something. I've felt this. And then you're like, Oh, I know how to do that. It's easy. And then you just inevitably get worse. <laughs> so if you're not getting better, yeah. you're getting worse. Well, I think that kind of plays into like, um, like with Billie Eilish, right? You'll hear people be like, Oh yeah. You know, it's like, she's so like talented. Right. And, and talent is, I, I think part of it for sure. Um, there is something to be said for the fact that like talent is the result of practice and talent doesn't exist, you know, as its own kind of bubble yeah. thing. Right. Like, and honest, honestly, like talent, I know a lot of talented people who yeah. can't sell 50 tickets in Edmonton, you know, right. They can't, maybe they can't even sell 20. So, um, talent is a marginal part of it. For sure. Yeah. Like obviously she's enormously talented, which helps. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's like 40% talent, 40% work ethic, 20% luck. Yeah. You know, she's a perfect storm. She's got it all. So. <laughs> uh, too, I, w- I wanted to touch a little bit on, um, like, picking collaborators for stuff. Just, uh, I know, uh, as I've kind of listened to your music over the years, um, you've picked a kind of unique crew of people to collaborate with across different records. And I think of that idea of, you know, people will talk about Brian Wilson as kind of like playing the studio as an instrument. Mm. And I think about um, the idea of choosing a band and playing the band like one big instrument, right? And how that changes the sound of a record. Mm -hmm. Um, Just wondering, yeah, I I guess about how you, uh, once you've got a group of songs that you want to record, how you go about thinking who you might actually want to bring those songs to life and how that's going to change the sound that you end up with. Yeah. I mean, some of it is happenstance. It's like the people you're surrounded with that you are familiar with that you admire. Um, there was a point like previous to nice, nice, very nice. I played mostly alone. I sometimes had a band here and there, but I played a lot alone, toured alone. Couldn't afford to hire anyone, you know, it was just, there was no money. And, um, and so, I kind of learned to write and I learned to 
hold people's attention alone. Like I'd be in the corner of like an Irish pub in Sarnia, Ontario or something. And you just, you have to win every single person in there one by one by being captivating, being magnetic. Um, and so I, I learned how to do that. Like I learned how to hold a crowd. Um, but I was not a very good musician and I knew it. Like I knew that I was not a great musician. I also, I was not a great singer, still barely a good singer, like not a, not, you know, and, um, and so I, I, I sort of coasted on, I don't want to say charm, but like coasted on the thing that I had learned to do well, which is just to connect with people right. through music. Like I was good at, at, you know, sending my message out into the world in a way that they could receive it in an invitational way and that they could feel a part of it. And, um, and so, you know, I, when I was, we made nice face, very nice. And I hired a bunch of musicians from Vancouver, but took them out to Toronto and they were just people from the scene. They're just like people that I'd seen play with other bands and, you know, people that I'd met. Um, and then after nice, nice kind of picked up and had some momentum and my career kind of started to move. Um, then it was like slightly more pointed decisions of like, okay, I need to be surrounded by like, just musicians who I can learn from, like people who can make, like I knew that I would be the worst musician on stage and that was okay because it was my name on the ticket and that I just wanted to be surrounded by really, really great musicians who I could learn from and, get, and become a better musician from. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it was a lot of guys from the like kind of avant-garde free jazz scene here in Vancouver, Kenton Lowen and Gordon Gardina and John Walsh and Jesse Zubat and Tyson Naylor and Peggy Lee and... Um, J.P. Carter, and um, these were people that I basically took on tour all around the world in various formats, and um, they taught me how to play music. I mean, I'm still not a great guitar player. I'm still not a great singer, but I can, um, I can, I can sort of. I know what it means to listen more. So, right. I think before I thought that I was leading a band. That's what I thought I was doing. Right. And then the truth is you're not. You might be the lead singer in a band, but you have to listen, like, to really play music, to sink into, like, that beautiful chord change. You can't be thinking about what you're doing. You have to just be listening to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And hopefully your muscle memory is strong enough and your intuition is strong enough that just by listening to everyone else, you become a part of it. And um, so, you know, there was a lot of pointed decisions there about, like, who I was surrounding myself with. And Right. And then, you know, going into uh, more or less, uh, I was working with Drew Brown. He wanted to make it in L.A. He had a cast of musicians in Los Angeles that he really wanted to work with. I was like, yeah, let's do it. And then when that record was done, you know, by that time, Kenton had left the band, and it was Gordon Johnny. And, uh, you know, we were very, very close. And uh, there was, like, no hard feelings or anything weird. But I just knew, listening to this record that we had made entirely with new vibes and new energies from these people like Joey Waronker and Jason Faulkner in Los Angeles. And I just had a feeling that I didn't want to take all this new material that had just been recorded in this new way yeah, and then kind of run it through the familiar treatment that we were giving everything else. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, I kind of grabbed a new band out of Toronto Um and I've uh, been with them ever since, Don Kerr, Jason Haberman, Michael Bryan. And that's kind of been my band for the last, you know, three years or so. 
And uh, it's strange. Like, I, I don't feel like I picked these people. I feel like they just fell into <laughs> my life in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Um, too, then I guess when when you're actually like putting together demos for a new record, then like, I, I guess I have written down in my notes here that part of what is kind of uh, uh, interesting or, or unique about a lot of your songs is that um, I have written down, they might be giants always sounds like they might be giants, even though the production <laughs> is crazy different, like, and, and the right. styles are so different, right? There's always something that's kind of recognizable as that yeah. band. And part of it is that it feels like a lot of your songs can kind of uh, uh, succeed with almost any kind of production treatment behind them. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, I have, like, we, in the car, we have this They Might Be Giants, like, kids album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's it's amazing. It's so good. Uh, and the, the kids love it. You know, there's, like, this alphabet song that, that we used to do. It was very cute. Um, and you're right. Like, it sounded like They Might Be Giants, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that part of it is, like, my voice is my voice. It's not, you. this isn't a voice you want in your choir, but... <laughs> You know, it's a voice that is me, yeah, and I've learned sure. how to use it. It was particularly gravelly in the early years. It was just a lot of yelling, and as I get older, I'm kind of learning how to embrace the softer side of my voice, which is really good. Yeah. Um, but I think also, like, it's in, it's a cursing, it's a curse, it's a cursing, it's a curse <laughs> and a blessing, in that, like, you know, for years, uh, the people that I, you know, in my that I work with my manager and stuff have been trying to get my music into like film and television. Cause that can be like a really lucrative. Yeah. And, and, and also it can like get you big audience. Like if you get a play in the right show at the right or the right film, it, you know, people Shazam it or whatever, it can like really affect your career. Um, and it's been really hard uh, because in a way, like all of my songs kind of just sound too much like me and my lyrics are, not vague enough, but also like not specific enough. And right. it's a weird, it's a weird phenomenon in that like, it, it's, it's almost like anytime you put most of my music to music, you can't help but pay attention to the song. And right. sometimes that doesn't always serve film and television the way it wants to be served, which is where <laughs> the music just makes you feel something and it doesn't matter what they're saying. Yeah. My lyrics are weird and pointed and jarring and I use weird clunky words in them and stuff. So I think it becomes distracting. Um, and I, again, like I'm really proud of that. Like I honestly, I believe that like nice, nice, very nice falls very easily into singer songwriter territory. For sure. You know, but as I got to be a bit more experimental, honestly, I don't think Oh Fortune sounds like any other band in the world. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that Club Med sounds like any other band in the world. There are influences, there are inspirations, there are elements here and there that are familiar. But those records, they just sound like the, a specific thing. Right. And it's kind of the same with more or less. And I'm really proud of that. Like, I like that all of these records are very, very different sounding. I haven't just like stuck to one thing that worked. Um, and uh, that's, you know, I just get. I can't be complacent. Like I need to try something new all the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am, I thank you for recognizing that throughout <laughs> all of these different interpretations, there is 
like a soul in there yeah. that is continuous, and and that is me. And I, you know, sometimes you can get so lost in production that you begin to um, lose sight of that, and you can sort of lose that essence. And I do think that it's important to try and find that essence despite the different genres. Yeah. Well, uh, I I know we're uh, we don't have a ton of time left. I want to make sure we do touch on side door stuff a little bit though too, mm-hmm. just because of how that has, uh, yeah, for sure exploded pretty good uh, throughout the pandemic. <laughs> so I don't know if you just want to describe, I guess, a little bit like what sure. it is that uh, side door is and what you kind of do within that. Yeah. So side door is a marketplace for the arts. Any space can be a venue, so you can sign up your build a profile for your living room, your bookstore, your backyard, your barn, your loft, your condo, whatever, any space. We're co-work space, library, church. Um, and you can connect directly with artists and you can build shows together um, and then you can split the proceeds of those shows. So the, the easiest analogy is just to say it's kind of like Airbnb, but for shows and for artists and spaces. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, prior to the pandemic, we ran about 350 shows in, um, you know, curling rinks and national parks and city halls and all of, all types of places. Um, and then as the pandemic kind of canceled all of that world, performance gatherings, um, we, you know, we dipped into online shows. And so over the course of the pandemic, we've done, I think, probably close to like a thousand online shows. And the first thing we did was we built a secure ticketing portal for Zoom. So you could sell up to a thousand tickets to a Zoom meeting, essentially. You don't even have to have a Zoom account. It's all hosted internally. And then we built a, uh, what we call our broadcast lane, which is like a more traditional live stream kind of thing. There's a chat and a video player and tips and whatever. Um, So there's like these two types of online shows. And now as in-person is kind of gearing up again, there's the return of the in-person show. So there's over 5,000 artists on side door and about 2,000 spaces in North America. Um, And the goal, you know, the dream is to build a global thriving marketplace that fosters like a real community um, and uh, middle class of artistry so that even if you're not famous or remotely famous, you can still make a carpenter's wage doing what you love um, by just sort of like bypassing the industry gatekeepers and playing directly for and with people. I guess to like, um, there's a kind of a really complicated picture, I think, of why something like that is necessary. Um, obviously, streaming is a part of that. Nobody's making, like, you can't make money on a record at this point. But but what do you think, I guess, is like, uh, the the main problem that is solved yeah. with something like that, like, well, about ninety seven percent of touring acts do not have a booking agent. Oh, I so didn't know that. I learned. I, I had a, a record label arm of Arts and Crafts called Matic Records for a while. Yeah, it's kind of on hiatus now. And I was booking all these like baby bands that didn't have a big audience, making amazing music, but they didn't, you know, they couldn't draw. And so I was pitching them at agents and nobody cared because nobody wants to do that groundwork you know nobody wants to like book the band until they can play to a hundred people everywhere they go right and so we was having a hell of a time getting gigs in real venues and uh but i knew like you know if i rewind back to 2006 my first show 
uh, in Calgary. It was at the Ironwood. I begged them to let me come and play. And they eventually they let me come play and, you know, probably made like 50 bucks or whatever. There's four people at the show. Yeah. Lost money just driving there, you know. Um, and, you know, it wasn't a terrible experience, but it was certainly didn't feel like I was making much traction playing to four people. And I came back to Calgary a little while later and played in this guy Doug's backyard. And uh, there's like 60 of his friends there. And they don't know who I am, but they trust Doug. Yeah. And so me and Laurie Matheson play. We probably each make like 500 bucks. It was a great pass the hat. Everyone's being generous. Everyone's buying CDs and high fives. And it's like, oh my God, I don't need the Ironwood. I need Doug. Like I need a Doug. And, <laughs> and I had like a motto. I was like, I just need to find a Doug in every town. Yeah. To like be my champion. And so that's sort of, you know, there, there's, if, if we're talking about 97% of artists don't have a booking agent, think of it like a funnel, right? Yeah. You got all these artists up here. And the funnel is the gatekeepers. They're not evil. They're, they're, they're people. They're people doing jobs. It's like uh, you know agents and managers and labels and promoters. But only so many people can get through this funnel down, down the hole at the bottom is the venues. There's only so many venues that you can play. Right. And the truth is that these venues rely on those gatekeepers to be full. They need to be full so that they can sell booze, so that they can pay their rent, so they can continue to exist. If you know, if they're underused, they don't they don't exist anymore. So it's a it's a system that works for the three percent of artists that are getting through. Right. And I found I was having a hell of a time getting through to the gatekeepers. How do I build an audience without the gatekeepers? Gatekeepers don't want to pay attention to me until I already have an audience. So it's chicken and egg. And so I subverted the funnel by going and like playing shows in alternative places. Um, and the cool thing was that because I was often playing in situations where there was no overhead doug wasn't charging rent for the venue it was just his backyard (laughs) he was just having fun yeah and so uh, the artists were making all of the money and so rather than going back home from a tour of bars where i was making like 50 bucks a night i was coming home with like a big envelope full of cash i could pay my rent playing music which allowed me to put both feet on the train and just like focus on music full time because i was making i wasn't making tons of money but i was making enough yeah. that I was getting by. And so music wasn't this thing that I was doing on the side of another trade. It was it was what I was doing all the time and I was serving tables at night still. And But so this whole thing of like subverting that funnel that only 3% of artists are getting through, like that's 97% of artists out there who are kind of like burning out, churning. They're not, they're giving up, but they could, you know, many of them could have a resilient real career um, if they just had direct access to, you know, 200 Dugs in every city. Yeah. That's all we need. Yeah. Have you thought about just renaming Side Door 200 Dugs? 200 <laughs> Dugs. Well, and, and I, you know, I've been quoted as saying this before, but like the why for Side Door for me is I want to see 100,000 artists that you've like barely or never heard of making $100,000 a year. Yeah. Like, you know, this sort of like thriving network of people who are able to make it work despite the fact that they haven't been able to woo the industry gatekeepers and like let it be known that nothing woos the industry gatekeepers <laughs> more than having an audience like yeah they if if they feel like an artist has done it all on their own and they don't need the gatekeepers guess what the gatekeepers want to do they want a piece they want to they want to they want a they want to be a part of it right and like oh my god this artist built their own following and Look, what a great story, you know, like 
let's get them in the get them in the machine. <laughs> Partly because they already have an audience, and so what you have is a situation where it's so hard to win promoters and managers and labels, and agents, unless you have a huge social you know social media following. So here you have artists, and like I see my friends doing it, and they're just like pumping out content in the hopes of virality. It's like pumping out all these like viral, you know, kind of like TikTok videos and Instagram videos, trying to get viral, trying to build a large following on social media so that the other doors will open for them. And that time spent, you know, making, you know, kind of gimmicky videos could be spent writing songs and playing shows. Yeah. And, um, so it's, it's all part of the pie. You can't subvert social media. It's just a necessary part of being an artist at this point. But there are, like right now, it's the only way. Yeah. It's the only, literally the only way you can have a career in the arts right now is by having like a large social media following. And I, I what, I'm, what I'm getting at is, it, you know, it's not that you can't maintain a, qual- a career in the arts without social media following. You can't build one today. Right. Yeah. You know, 15 years ago when I was getting started, you could because social media didn't, didn't exist. Um, but today, you won't get booked at festivals. You won't get, you know, nobody, people just won't give you a chance if you just don't have, if you're like just not on Instagram. Yeah. Try getting booked at a festival. Won't happen, you know, <laughs> or most festivals. Yeah. Um, it's just because the festival knows that when you get booked at the festival, you're going to put their poster on your inst- your social media. And if you have a million followers, they just got a million followers worth of free advertising by booking you on, at the festival. So it's all, it's it feels dirty. It's just people rationalizing, you know, their existence in, in the industry now. It's, yeah. It's, it's okay. Like it, it's nothing to get, it, it's nothing to be angry about. It's, it's the state of the industry. It's okay. Um, it's changing and bobbing and weaving all the time. And so I, I just want a way that people can have tactile, real community building artistic experiences that help artists make a living. Yeah. yeah. And that's what side door does. Well, uh, that's as, as good a place as any to, uh, pivot into a, into an ending. Um, we usually play a track uh, from the artist on the show. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess what what uh, what track would you want to finish off things uh, with here? Well, I, a track that I am particularly proud of uh, in recent years. Uh, that is a nice upbeat one uh, to finish off. A lot of bummer songs. <laughs> um, is Peaks and Valleys, and this was recorded in Studio Two and. East West down in uh, Los Angeles, the same studio where Pet Sounds was recorded. Yes. Um, and uh, this is Joey Warunker on the kit. Jason Faulkner is playing the mini Moog for the bass line. Um, and uh, it was just, it was crazy. Like, this was the first take essentially. And we didn't really talk about form or anything like that. And we just kind of like messing around. And something about the quality of the recording, Drew took it, he chopped it up a little bit, moved some things around, but essentially it's like one live take. Yeah. And uh, it just, uh, it's one of those things where going into the studio, this the demo of this song had kind of like a Motown feel. Yeah. And I thought, I thought it was this one thing. And then just the way that Joey Waronker heard it 
and started playing the drums in this crazy way. And it almost feels like um, 50 ways to leave your your lover, but like on LSD or something. Like it's got this like psychedelic kind of thing. Yeah. And um, I just, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I love the recording of this song and uh, I think it's a good one to leave on. Perfect. Well, uh, we're going to listen to a song called Peaks and Valleys off of uh, More or Less. Uh, Dan, holy man, thanks so much for chatting. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much. Love is simple when it's broken. It's the softest words ever spoken. I said I was kidding, but I was joking Now I'm twisted up and lost in thought But I remember I was thinking All that feeling always sinking All that waiting Take that stage And the feeling weak But I'm waiting, hey, Stephen How Sally how the keys and how the valleys And I've been down some, but I'll rally Have you found something to sink Teeth in two, keep it even Keep her happy, don't be afraid to Love her madly And she will steer you and keep you afloat As you row that boat until you both let go See, I just get softer, the world gets colder, and now I'm twisted up and lost in thought. But do you remember the night got late? The equations were recalculated in my veins, and you saved my life. In the final round, some kind of paper cup, tea, some hell bath, festival ground, and hasty. How Sally and how the peaks and how the valleys and I've been down so but I'll rally and have you found something to sink it deep into so keep it even keep her happy and don't be afraid to love her madly we should recap lay it on me the good the bad in between a hasty and Are you happy and how the kids man? How's that family that cannot spare you From the valleys But they will give you something Lean into so keep it even Keep her happy Don't be afraid to love her madly She will steer you you afloat as you row that boat until you both let go. So 
When I got nothing on my mind. Inside the Artist Studio is produced by Sean Davis Newton for the Cups and Cakes Network. The featured track, Peaks and Valleys, was played with permission from Dan Mangan. Thanks to Laundry Week for the use of their song, Nothing on My Mind, from the Grimpy EP as our intro and outro music. Inside the Artist Studio is one of the many ways that the Cups and Cakes Network highlights Canadian music. Visit our website, cupsandcakespod.com, to browse our audio, video, and written content. That's cups, a letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>